Okay, this, <clears throat> this coming week we have the privilege of continuing the storyline as it unfolds in Parsha's Vayeshev. So as we do every week, just to quickly give an overview of the entire Parsha, and then we'll come back, and then we'll come back to examine the uh, psukim that we're going to look at this week. At the end of uh, last week's Parsha, we have again the uh, reunification, the reconciliation of Yaakov and Esav, and uh, while they seem to reconcile, at least superficially for that moment, they, uh, they then go on their separate ways, and the Parsha last week concludes with the genealogy, with the uh, offspring, the chronology of, of Esav's progeny. And that brings us to the beginning of this week's Parsha, which is Vayeshev Yaakov Beretz Megure Aviv, that Esav returns to live in the, hand, the uh, home, the land of his forefathers, Yaakov. namely of Yaakov. Now this Vayeshev Yaakov, Rashi already points out, I think it's Rashi here, that Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Beshalva. Yaakov had spent his life on the run. He's exhausted. He's been running. He's been fleeing. He's been navigating conflict his entire life. And we know, as we learned last week from the Rashbam, Yaakov has an aversion. He has an aversion to confrontation. He hates confrontation. He has to confront his big brother. He doesn't do it. He's got to confront his father to say he's due the blessing. He doesn't do it. He has to confront his father-in-law, Lavan, after he's tricked a series of times. He doesn't do it. It's time to get together with his, father, with his brother Esav. And what does he do? that he heads over the valley, the Amek, and says to Rashbam something unbelievable we saw last week, because he's out of there. He can't handle conflict. He sends his wives and his children and his everybody, you go deal with Esav. And he says, I'll be back in a minute, under the guise of going to collect Pach and Ketanim, these small jugs. But really, he's out of there. He can't take conflict. And that's why Yvasar Yaakov Levado is confronted by the angel, by his alter ego, by his Yitzhahara, God sends his intermediary to stop him and say, you can't run from your destiny. You have to f- confront your destiny and your fate. You can't run away. Stop trying to run away. You have to live the life you were meant to live. So now Yaakov returns home, the beginning of our parsha, and he just wants to sit quietly. He just wants to sit quietly and have peace and serenity. Because this is Yaakov. He has an aversion to conflict. He wants to go back to the base medrash of Shein Ve'ever. He wants to sit in the four walls of the study hall and pour over Torah. He, uh, he's uncomfortable, though he's exhibited the capacity to live in a home of Lavan and to observe Tariq Mitzvahs, as he told his brother. He just wants to live peacefully. And does he, is he allowed to? Is he given allowance to? No. And that's our Parsha. Because now you have this further conflict. One could argue he contributed towards by favoring one son, but he's got conflict within his own children and Yosef's disappearance and the famine and the brothers and the whole end of now the story that will now take us from this Parsha to the end of Sefer Bracious. What's so bad about Leshev Beshalva? What's so bad about serenity, peacefulness? What's so bad about being able to have that? So the answer is that in Judaism we believe that growth and progress are not the result of serenity, apathy, complacency. You know, even in, even in retirement, one is not supposed to achieve their retirement and live a retired life of apathy, complacency, and indifference. How old is Yaakov at this time? What's Yaakov's age? I'm not sure. Rabbi, you know? I'm not sure. Yeah, he's, he's advanced in age. He's not, a, he's not a young man. He qualifies for Century Village. Let's put it that way. <laughs> he qualifies for Century Village and for our empty nest. Well, not such an empty nest yet, apparently, but at least for Century Village. So what's so bad? I don't want to spend time on this because it's supposed to be a text-based class. But it seems to me, 
God understands that, that growth is the result of the struggle. It's what we talked about last week with Vayivasar Yaakov Levado. You're never ever supposed to be satisfied. A person needs to always live their life feeling the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And being retired doesn't mean that the best is behind you. You could be retired with the best yet to come. You're going to have the best davening you ever had. You're going to learn at the best level you ever learned where your mind is uncluttered and undistracted. You're going to have the best relationships you ever had. You're going to be the best grandparent you ever were. You're going to volunteer in the best way you could ever volunteer. You're going to write articles in the best way. You could write letters to the editor, advocate for Israel. Retirement doesn't mean complacency and apathy. You could have the best is yet to come even in retirement. And so God does not accept the request of Leshev Bashalva to settle down peacefully, but challenges still confront Yaakov. And as we learned with Avraham, the whole notion of tests is not to view them as tests, but to view them as opportunities. Tests are not tests, said the Ramban. A nace is an opportunity. We suggested maybe Milashon Nisayon as a flag. We say in davening, it's a flag, it's a marker, it exhibits, this is where a major growth took place. I endured this test which really presented an opportunity to grow. So we don't, we don't welcome the tests, but when we're confronted by them, we see them as opportunities to grow. So that's the beginning of, of this week's uh, Parsha. So there are, Yaakov has uh, Yosef, his son, he's 17 years old, he's a shepherd, his brother's. And, uh, and so on. And the Torah testifies that Yaakov loved Yosef. It doesn't call him Yaakov here, it calls him Yisrael. It's not for today, but it needs to be worked out. Why does the text sometimes continue to refer to him as Yaakov and sometimes as Yisrael? The Gemara already told us that once Avram and the others, with the other Avos and Imos, when there are the matriarchs and patriarchs, when their names were changed, we are forbidden to use their old name. That name change reflects not an additional layer of their personality, but a transformation of their personality. And you're not allowed to revert back. You can't use their old name. Yaakov is the one exception. He's Yaakov and Yisrael simultaneously. And that leaves the question, why does the text sometimes call him Yisrael and sometimes call him Yaakov? See here when it describes that he loved Yosef, text calls him Yisrael. Yisrael lahav is Yosef. Yaakov learned, loved Yosef from all of his sons, Ben Zekunim Hulo. He was his uh, child that he had in old age. And Asalok Sonas Pasim, he made him a coat of many colors. This coat of many colors is the subject of great animosity and jealousy and, uh, and hatred. And it really causes the unfolding of the story. In fact, I think I've shared with you before, at, on Pesach night at the Seder, which of course we celebrate the exodus from Mitzrayim to Egypt. How did we get to Egypt to begin with? through the sale that we're going to read about momentarily. So what do we do at the Seder that commemorates our exodus, our ability to leave Egypt, not only leave the physical space of Egypt, but metaphysically leave Egypt behind also. In other words, to, to be taken out of Egypt and to have Egypt taken out of us. How do we celebrate it? One of the ways is karpas. We dip parsley, potatoes, different minhagim. If you're really hungry at that point in the Seder, all of them are your minhagim. Rabbi Tights and Elizabeth would dip a banana, banana, parsley, potato, whatever it is. So we dip karpas. Why do we dip karpas? What does the word karpas mean? Where does the word karpas come from? So Rabbeinu Manoach, one of the commentaries in the Rambam on Maimonides, says, you know where the word karpas comes from? Ketonas pasim. Karpas is ketonas pasim. The coat of many colored. When we dip, what do we, what? 
He says he pure, he shows etymology how it works, etymologically how it works. But where does it come from? So what are we doing? What do you do with the karpas? You dip it. What happens in our parsha with this coat of many colored? It got dipped in blood. Who dipped it in blood? We'll see. The brothers dip it in blood because of sinas chinam. There's baseless hatred between brothers. Not only is there a lack of brotherhood and baseless love, there's baseless hatred. And the baseless hatred was exhibited by dipping this coat, the source of the jealousy, in blood. So what we do when we come to the Seder, says Rabbeinu Manoach, is we take karpas, reminiscent of that coat of many colors, and we dip it. Because even at the Seder, we remember what led us into the servitude to begin with. Even at the Seder, while we commemorate the Exodus, we remind ourselves of what generated the servitude to begin with, and we pledge ourselves to the fact that we're not going to follow in that hatred and animosity. So Yosef has these dreams, he's a dreamer. In his dreams, of course, there's all the symbolism of his brothers bowing down to him, worshipping him, and uh, that's the beginning of the Parsha. Then Yosef is sent to visit his brothers, that's what we're going to examine today. And they conspire against him and say, this dreamer? Let's get rid of this dreamer altogether. Reuven saves Yosef from the plot to kill him, says let's throw him in a pit instead. Instead they put him in the pit. But when merchants go by, they say, you know what? We can make some money off of this. Pull him out. Let's sell him. They sell him. They return the coat dipped in blood to their father. Their father mourns and cries and is uh, not able to be consoled. The next story we have is Yehuda and Tamar, the one they skip in school when you're a little kid. But it is uh, very interesting to read, of course, that uh, Yehuda's sons marry Tamar, but they die for their own sins. What exactly was their sin? We're not going to get into. And then Tamar uh, disguises herself because she is desirous of having sons from continuing the name of her husband and uh, there's no one to replace him. So she goes and she seduces her father-in-law. You you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) I mean... It's the, beauty, it's the beauty of the Jewish Torah, of the Jewish Bible. It's not a book of, of purity and perfection and, and uh, I don't know, existential thought. And it's, it's real life. It's real stuff. So uh, Yehuda and Tamar, then she comes and she says, you know, pregnant from you. And he, 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 um, he says it's not true. And so she shows him the objects that he had given her as collateral. And ultimately you have Yehuda expressing those words. Words which indeed the Medrash say earns Yehuda the Malchus. Why is it that Jewish kingship and royalty emanates from Yehuda? The Medrash asks why from Yehuda. It says maybe for this reason. Maybe for that reason. Maybe. You know what one of the reasons? One of the reasons, not the ultimate reason, is because Yehuda admits to Tamar, Sadkami many, you are more righteous than I. The very name Yehuda means admission. Admission, gratitude, they're connected. Beautiful thought of Rafutner, every expression of gratitude is an admission that I needed you, I thank you. But Yehuda, and indeed our entire name of Yehudim, and Malchus, Jewish royalty, monarchy, comes from Yehuda because a leader must have the capacity to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. You are more right than I. You can't be an effective leader if your ego is so inflated that you always think you're right and you have an inability to ever admit you're wrong. So Yehudi admits his error and earns his legacy. Yosef is brought down to Potiphar. He's Sris Paro. He's in Egypt. Potiphar's wife now tries to seduce Yosef. 
and Yosef rebuffs all of her efforts and there comes a moment where he's about to give in and he can't seem to hold himself back when the, you know Potiphar is not home and the wife again I don't need to paint the graphic picture for you you can do that yourself but she basically tries to seduce him into her bedroom and he almost can't withstand and finally he does how does he do it by the way the, the imagery of the Yukno Shalaviv the imagery of his father so uh, he's thrown in jail and there he encounters these two guys and he's, he's able to interpret their dreams and that's it the Parsha ends okay that's an overview of the Parsha what we're going to examine today there's so much more to say on every other aspect of the Parsha that I alluded to but our, our goal in this class is to examine the text ask questions based on the text so that's what we're going to do we're going to start from Perak Lamed Zion Pasuk Yudbeis chapter 37 verse 12 which corresponds with the beginning of the Sheni Aliyah, the beginning of the second Aliyah, which corresponds with the Stone Chumash, the top of page 202-203. Where we are is Yosef had his dreams, and the brothers are not home, and Yaakov... The brothers went to bring their father's flock out to pasture to graze in Shechem. What's unusual on that pasuk? The word S. What's unusual about that word S? Two dots. There's dots on top of the word S. Why are there dots on top of the word S? Asks Rashi. Nakudal S. Shlohochu elaliros es atzman. Because why were they really going? Was it their father's best interest that they were worried about? It was their own interest that they were worried about. It wasn't their father, it was their own plans. In fact, I don't know exactly why we needed the dots because you could have learned that from it seems that the whole word S is extraneous. Could have been <coughs> They went to shepherd the flock of, of their father. So not only is the word S extraneous, but the dots on top of the word S reveal that the brothers had their own selfish, nefarious plans in mind. It wasn't really that their father, even though the word aviam is used, it wasn't their father that they were concerned with. Uh-huh. Okay, so maybe that break also indicates. Good. So Yaakov, again, who's referred to here, by the way, as Yisrael, Yaakov says to Yosef, your brothers are out grazing in Shechem, go, and I'm sending you to them. Yosef says, Hineni. So there's a lot of unusual things in this Pasuk. First of all, Halo achecha ro'im b'shchem, Aren't your brothers, say, aren't your brothers um, shepherding out in, uh, in Shechem? Lecha ve'eshlachecha alayhem. Go now and look into their welfare. But that's not, that's how the article translates it. Sorry, lecha, come and I will send you to them. Lecha. Why lecha? So Yaakov says to Yosef, your brothers are out shepherding in Shechem, aren't they? Come and I will send you to them. I mean, come, go and I'll send you to them. Go means I'm sending them to them. Why does Yaakov have to say, I will send you to them? Just go. Your brothers are out shepherding in Shechem, go. What does it add? I will send you to them. If he just said go, it means go to them, I'm sending you. 
And if he says, I'm sending you to them, he doesn't have to say go. What is lecha ve'eshlachacha alehem? And lastly, vayomer lo hineni. And how does Yosef reply? Hineni, here I am. What do you mean here I am? <laughs> if Yisrael calls Yosef and he says, vayomer Yisrael, Yosef, Yosef, vayomer hineni, I understand that. What do you mean hineni at the end of the... Uh, I, know, I know you're here. <laughs> I know you're here because I've just been talking to you. You know? What's, so what's going on here? So Rashi says hineni, Lashon anava uzrizus. Rashi also obviously was bothered by that. Hineni doesn't mean here I am. For Rashi, at least in this context, Hineni means I am your humble, modest servant and I am acting with alacrity. Zrizus, with great zeal and alacrity, I'm ready to go. What is the Hineni? It's a hint, says Rashi. Yosef's no fool. Yosef knows that he's not the apple of his brother's eyes. His brothers don't love him. So when his father says, hey, your brothers are out, do me a favor, go check on them. Yosef could have said, ah, you know, listen, Dad, Pop, I'm, I'm busy cleaning the attic. I've got to wash my hair. I'm taking care of some things. You know, I, he has to know that his brothers are in collusion against him. But he doesn't. Hineni means, I am so committed and dedicated to you, Dad, says Rashi, that that supersede, excuse me, supersedes my suspicion of my brothers. He was more concerned with showing honor to his father than he was about being suspicious of his of his brothers. The Orachayim Hakadosh. His father knew what? No, he wanted he wanted him to go check it out. He knew where they were. He was telling him to go check it out. So hold off. Look at the Orachayim Hakadosh. Unlike the art scroll. Right? The art scroll translates lecha as come, I will send you to them. The Rachaim is saying lecha, go, eitzalachicha. So why did Yaakov throw in I'm sending you? Because Yaakov was anticipating so the Orchayim understands that extra use in the Pasuk. Again, we're trying to focus here on the text. Even though this seems to be a little bit of a drushy shot. But the Orchayim says, Yaakov anticipates y- Yosef's hesitation. You're going to hesitate because you're going to say, I'm going to go check on my brothers. Are you not aware of the tension between me and my brothers? They're going to kill me. So Yaakov prevent- he anticipates it and he says, I'm sending you. So that now you're going to see them is not your own volition. You're going as an agent, as a messenger for me. And going as an agent or a messenger for your father is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah, it's a positive merit to listen to your father. And we have a principle, shluchei mitzvah eina nizakim. That someone who is occupied with doing a mitzvah is protected and secure from dangers. That's why some have... I think, ridiculous custom of giving people a dollar. Oh, you're going to Israel? Take a dollar. Now you're a shliach to do a mitzvah to give a dollar in Israel. Now the plane can't go down because you're doing a mitzvah. Now nothing could go wrong because you're doing a mitzvah. So we do have the principle, but the Orachayim, as he points out in this next uh, comment, if you keep reading, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Atu mefar shlichos ha-mitzvah 
Shosef. Right? The next pasuk Yaakov elaborates on what the mitzvah is. Rama Rashi Veni Davar, go go speak to them, find out, bring back to me what's going on. Look in the next paragraph. Ve'agam shayu echav sonim asa ushchiyeh chazeka. Sover Yaakov kedas rabbanu shachokim implimo bepsachim. You see, this concept that we have, that Shluchay Mitzvah in and Izakim, somebody who's going to do a mitzvah can't be hurt, that's true, the Gemara qualifies it. Yeah, that's true. But don't try it in Harlem. Don't, don't try to go do a mitzvah in Ramallah. If you go do a mitzvah in a dangerous circumstance or place, don't depend or rely on God to save you. Meaning, everything else being equal, you're busy doing something meritorious. God doesn't like to strike down somebody in the middle of doing something virtuous. But, even if you're doing something virtuous, but you're doing it in a dangerous place or way or manner, then you're a fool. You're subject to the elements and God can't protect you. That's the opinion in Psachim. Shluchim mitzvah en nizakim. Except, Shechir chazeka. By the way, you see the same thing. Pesach night. I don't know why I'm so fixated on Pesach night. But, Pesach night. We're not even in Hanukkah yet. It's around the corner, exactly, exactly. It's around the corner. So Pesach night, we have a concept that it's a Lel Shimurim Hu. Torah refers to it as Lel Shimurim. It's a night of divine protection. So what does that mean? So there's all kinds of sources. You could sleep with the door unlocked, and you don't have to say Krishma Lamita, and the Krishma at night, all kinds of things. But there are later sources that say, listen, if you live in a bad neighborhood, Lel Shimurim doesn't work. You better lock your door. If Shechia Chazeka, there's a prowler on the loose, there's a, uh, a murderer who signs posted and everything, don't leave your door unlocked and say, you know, Lel Shimurim Hu. Shechia Chazeka, the Torah says you have to live within the real world and the real circumstance and variables of life. If there's some danger which is imminent, then don't challenge it. So the Yorachayim is saying, so what's going on here? Yaakov says to Yosef, oh, you're on a mission to do a mitzvah. I asked you to check on your brothers, now you're doing it for me. You know, there's no greater imminent danger than the brothers who've already expressed their animosity towards Yosef. So how can he send Yosef and put him in such a circumstance? So the Orachayim has all answer to that. That you see this is Yaakov held unlike that opinion. Yaakov held according to the opinion that even when danger is imminent, you'll be protected if you're doing a virtuous deed. But continuing in the Orachayim, the next paragraph. You know, it's all well and good. This concept, the Orachayim's pshat. You're going to do a mitzvah, nothing bad can happen to you. Do you know anyone who went to Israel to give the dollar in the Kotel when they got sick? Something happened, the tragedy occurred? I do. How did it happen? Didn't the dollar help? Didn't it help? Yaakov's whole strategy was, ya- Yaakov, you're going to do a, Yosef, you're going to do a mitzvah, so nothing bad can happen to you. Oh, that's beautiful, that's cute. Except, if you keep reading, what happens to Yosef? His mitzvah that he was going to do didn't end too well. The merit of this virtuous deed didn't result in his uh, ability to return home. Gets sold into slavery. So the Rechaim says, well, what happened? So Yeshlomar shenezek shetachlisa o hatava umala gedola eina chashav nezek. Right? That, okay, so now nezek, damage, danger, is relative. Ultimately, Yosef's being sold into slavery. Was that bad? It was great. Because he saved the economy of Egypt. And that saved Yaakov and his sons, who during the famine were able to tap into the economy, and they were able to move their family down there, and they were able to live in great affluence. 
Then we went through a tough time of servitude, but then we graduated the Exodus, we became a people, we forged as a nation, we received the Torah. So it depends if the camera zoomed in or zoomed out. When the camera zoomed in, this isolated event doesn't end too well. It says, if you zoom the camera out, and you look at the big picture, ha, since he went to go do a mitzvah, didn't end badly. Look how great it ended. <laughs> so everything is relative. Okay, cute. Then he continues to Says the Orchayim, a second answer to that question. You know why it didn't end so well for Yosef? Let's leave the camera zoomed in. It didn't end well. Well, what happened? He was going to do a mitzvah for his father. How could it not end well? Says the Orchayim, because his father said to him specifically, Go find your brothers where? Shechem. As we'll read in a moment, Yosef goes to Shechem. No brothers to be found. He sees someone, he says, Hey, have you seen my bros? And he sends him in that direction. He finds his brothers not in Shechem. Says the Orchayim, the divine protection only was the merit of fulfilling his father's word. His father's word was Shechem. When they weren't in Shechem, he should have said, my father said to see them in Shechem. They're not in Shechem. I'm at him. Going home. When he continued to look for them, he was no longer fulfilling his father's mandate, which meant he was no longer under his father's word. It's all cute, but it doesn't work for me because I would think it's even more virtuous. Your father just said, check for them in Shechem. And you, you, you know, it wasn't... Father says, go to the supermarket and buy me milk. And they don't have milk. You could come home and say, he sent me to this Publix. There was no milk. I did my job. Or you could go to the Winn-Dixie because you're so committed to your father that you're going to fulfill his word. Which is the greater loyalty to your father? I would think it's when you go to Winn-Dixie. So I'm not sure, you know. It's an uh, interesting, complicated Orachim. Continuing. Why, by the way, why did his father want him to go to Shechem to see the brothers? I just asked... Why did he... Right, but implying in... Okay, implying in Shechem. The Orachim reads it as, because he delineated the place that they were, it's implied that he wanted them to visit them specifically there. The text doesn't reveal, why is Yaakov sending Yosef? I mean, Yaakov has to be familiar with his animosity. Why is he sending Yosef? And what's the matter? So the brothers are out there grazing, shepherding. Well, come on when they're done. What's the problem? So look at the Rashbam. Shmuel ben Meir Rashi's grandson. Hello, Achicha Roim b'Shchem. Your brothers, Achicha, your brothers are out there in Shchem. B'Makom Sakana Shahargu Anche Hamakom. What do we know about Shchem? It ain't the safest neighborhood for the Jewish people to be hanging out. I mean, which leads to the question to begin with, which is why were they grazing in Shchem? Was there nowhere else to graze? You know, it's like somebody from uh, wherever going to graze in. Uh, Janin. You know, why are you going to graze in Janin? So why is Shechem not the safest neighborhood? If you paid attention to last week's parsha, because after Dina is abducted, abused, and raped, and her brother Shimon and Levi stand up, and they, in a great moment of Jewish pride, not for Yaakov, who later criticizes them for it, again, by the way, consistent with Yaakov's personality that we developed last week, that Yaakov is this has this aversion to conflict. Like, what are you doing? Okay, they took her, we'll work it out. Diplomacy, we'll talk, we'll schmooze, we'll love them, we'll embrace them. What are you doing? What are you fighting? That's Yaakov's personality, this aversion to conflict. You see it in five, six, eight circumstances. So, but what do, what, and he's therefore later critical of Shimon and Levi for doing this. But what do they do? The rest of us who grew up on Rambo, 
and Rocky, you know, we, uh, Jewish people could be like Ruben and Shimon and do this. That's awesome. What do they do? They trick Shem. So last week's Pasha. Some people oh, you want to marry Dina? No matter, you can marry all of us. You can marry into our family. You just need to have a little, little thing called a circumcision. So circumcise yourselves, and then we can talk. And day three, which is when you're most vulnerable in the recovery process, what do they do? Annihilate the people of Shechem. So you can imagine that they were not exactly uh, beloved in the town of Shechem. So that's what the Rashbam says when Yaakov says to Yosef, you know what, your brothers aren't back yet. Go, go check on them. They were last grazing in Shechem. Why was he worried? Because it was a Makom Sakana. It was a dangerous, it was a dangerous place. Okay, continuing. Go check the well-being of your brothers. And while you're at it, I wouldn't mind checking out my portfolio. And bring me back word. Tell me how they're doing. And they therefore were sent. They were, he was dispatched from Amek, the valley of Hebron. And he came towards Shechem. What's unusual? Amek, Hebron. Asks Rashi, Hebron Bahar. Is Chevron in a valley? No, a or is Chevron on a mountain? Shenemar vayaluba negev vayavo ar Chevron. Ela meitza amuka shaloso tzadik hakavur bechevron lekayim mashenemar leAvram bein habsarim kikeri yezarecha. When he said, "I'm sending you from Amek Chevron," he didn't mean what is it called? Topography? Topographically? Topography. So how would you say he didn't mean topographically? He didn't mean topographically. He meant he meant metaphysically that Hebron is the depth of Hebron means who's buried in the depths of Hebron and the profundity of Hebron is our avos, our great matriarchs and patriarchs, Avram. And what was promised to Avram there in the Brisbane Absarim, in the covenant that he forged with God? What was promised to Avram was Ger Yezarecha. Your children are going to be strangers in a strange land. They're going to find themselves in Egypt. Then I'll take them out and I'll make them a great people and so on and so forth. So Rashi says, this unusual word, Amek, when Hebron really is a mountain, but it's described as a valley, is not a topographical reference, but is an allusion to the storyline and what's about to unfold. That this, this dispatching of Yosef to check on his brothers is going to initiate the unfolding of a story which ultimately will be the fulfillment of the promise to Avram, your children will be in a strange land. Okay, continuing. We're in Pasuk 15, Tezvav. He's heading towards Shechem. And a man discovers him. Which is also funny. I would think he discovered a man. You're walking and he ran into a man, but a man discovered him. And he was confused. He was all confused in the field. So the man said to him, he was courteous and nice. And he said to him, what are you looking for? He's probably from Florida, not from certain other locations that have lots of Jews, where I grew up. So he was courteous and he said, what are you looking for? Can I be of help to you? Who is this Ish? Who is this Ish? So the Ibn Ezra says, before you get bent out of shape, He's an ish, he's a man. He's some guy who happened to be on the way. And he said, are you lost? Can I help you? What are you looking for? So the Ibn Ezra, who of course is very committed to the pshat, 
the Ibn Ezra's style is not to subscribe to Medrash. Rashi's whole commentary is based on Medrash. The Ibn Ezra's approach is based on the literal interpretation. So Ibn Ezra, kind of alluding to Rashi, before you get bent out of shape, it means, There was some guy who was selling lemonade on the side. He said, you look lost, where are you headed? But Rashi says, no, 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 that's not this Ish. This Ish is no ordinary Ish. This is not any ordinary man. Ze Gavriel. This is the angel Gavriel. Shneemar Ve'ha'ish Gavriel. In the book of Daniel, it refers to Gavriel as Ve'ha'ish Gavriel. So therefore, the Ish reference is, we know this is an angel, not some ordinary man. Okay, fine. Um, so Yosef is confused. He's lost in the field. Why does the Torah tell us Basada? I say, Ish v'nei to'eh. What does in the field add? Is he lost on the road, in the field, in the city, on the farm? Who cares? He's looking for his brothers. And he goes to Shechem and they're not there. And this man says, you look lost, can I help you? Why, why is he described as being lost? He's lost in the field. As if the field is somehow... It's somehow elucidating his, his being lost. It's expanding. He, what kind of loss does he? He's lost in the field. It's not just that he's confused, fablundered. He's fablundered in the field. What, what is that adding? What does basada add? What's the, what's the function of the lemur? Oh, good. What's the function of the lemur also? So look, we'll get back to that in one second. But look at the basada. The kliyakar is bothered by this. Look at the second paragraph. Umedrasho sheta be'inyan hasada hanemar bekayin vehevel. The Kliyakar, very beautifully here, in my opinion, says this Sada is reminiscent of a different field and a different conflict between brothers, namely, Cain and Hevel. Ki Yosef, right, Adam, Adam's two sons, Cain and Hevel, the beginning of creation. Ki Yosef Says the Kuyakar the following. Cain kills Hevel. The Torah there describes the book of Binning and Bereshis. Cain kills Hevel. Where does that take place? In the field. What were they fighting over? They were fighting over a sacrifice. Cain, Hevel's was accepted. Cain's was not accepted. But it was really fighting over the land. Whose land is it? Where you're standing, it's mine. Fighting over the field. They're fighting over sacrifice, agricultural. You're giving a gift to God based on an animal, based on agriculture. That's his big fight. Ego. So Yosef thought, I know that when brothers fight, it can result in death. But that's over big things. This coat, it's insignificant. Who cares? So the Torah says, he's to'eb basadeh. He made a mistake in thinking that brothers only take each other's blood over major things. To'eb, his mistake was basadeh, thinking that when does a brother kill a brother? Over a field, over property. But a coat, who cares? Because when a brother hates a brother, says the Kliyakar, they'll kill him over anything even something utterly insignificant. 
How many times do you have two brothers who haven't spoken in 20 years and neither remembers why they're not talking? I, I've been involved in counseling such cases. What started the fight? You know, I don't really remember. You know, I can't really recall. I think it had something to do with A, B, or C. But I can't really remember. All I know is I hate him, I never talk to him, I don't want to ever see him, I simchos, my simchos. So great animosity can grow out of insignificant conflict. And that's what Yosef forgot. And that's the reference says the Kliyakar in the Pasuk, Toeb Basadeh, because Basadeh seems entirely extraneous. As does, Sarah pointed out, Lemur. It could have said, the man, be it Gavriel the angel, be it some biological man, asked, hey, you look lost. What, do you, what can I help you with? What is it, why does it have to say? He asked him saying, Lemur. What does Lemur add? So the Orachayim HaKadosh deals with that. But we're not going to. So you can look at that when you want. Keep going. Tess Zion. But you asked a good question. That's the point of this. The point of our time together is to have a sensitivity to the text, to ask the questions that could yield beautiful new interpretations. So Yosef tells him, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me, where are they grazing? Where are they shepherding? Now, it's interesting. He didn't say to him, do you know my brothers? He didn't say to him, do you know my brothers? He just says to him, I'm looking for my brothers, where are they? He didn't say, I'm looking for my brothers, Reuben, Shem, and Levi, are you familiar with them? Did you go to school with them? Do you know them? you know to see with them? No, he just says, I'm looking for my brothers, where are they going? So the Sif Sechachamim in Os Zion points out, that's why Rashi concluded that this Ish is Gavriel. Because Yosef didn't say to him, I'm looking for my brothers, do you know them? Rather, he assumed he knew his brothers. That's how Rashi knew that this man was no ordinary man. This was none other than the angel. Which would also imply that Yosef had some notion that this was more than just a man, that this was an angel. develops that. But again, it's a sensitivity to the text. Why doesn't Yosef say, I'm looking for my brothers, are you familiar with them? Maybe you know, maybe you've seen them. He doesn't say that. Okay, continuing. So the man, angel man, replies, Nasumize. What does Nasumize mean? Pasuk Yudzayin, verse 17, says they moved from here, they went on from here. Kishamati omrim, I overheard them saying, Nelcha uh, dosaina, we're going to head towards Dotan. Vayelach Yosef achar echa, vayimtsaim bidotan. Yosef then fathers his brothers, and indeed he finds them where? In Dosan. So what do you mean, Nasumize? What's Mizeh? From this? But he didn't say that. He could have just said, They they booked out. They moved on. They left. Because it doesn't say they just left. He doesn't just say, They just just left. You just missed them. It says, Nasu Mizeh. What does it mean, Mizeh? Mizeh sounds like from something. It's not just that they left that they were going to something. Meaning, when you go anywhere, when you go anywhere, you have this in the beginning of Parshas Vayetze. I forgot which of the Mephoshim says this. Vayetze Yaakov mi Shava. Vayelecharana. When you go somewhere, there can be two motivations. Is it the destination that you're going to? 
Or is it the place that you're leaving? So when we say you left, is it that you left and you're going to somewhere? Or is it that you left because you're leaving somewhere? Where is the emphasis? On where you're leaving or on where you're going to? So the first one talk about that, Vayetza Yaakov. How did Rashi know that Roshem on a city, whatever. So over here, Nasu, they left. Now I would have thought Nasu, they left. Why? Because they're going somewhere. Either they're going home, they're going to another field because they need to continue to graze. They ran out of grass over here. What does Nasu mean? So the text adds, Nasu, they didn't just go to somewhere, but Mizeh, they also left from somewhere. So what, why would they be leaving from Shechem? Why is the emphasis on they left from? So look at Rashi. Nasu Mizeh, Hesiu Atzman Min Ha'achva. It wasn't again a geographical description that they left. The angel was telling Yosef, almost in a cautionary way, know that they have entirely left the notion of camaraderie, brotherhood, love, and kinship. They've left. I'm done. I'm gone. Out of here. Right? You see this also in a lot of broken relationships. Someone will describe, I'm out of there. Not physically, mentally. I'm out of there. I'm done. I've put up with enough. So... They've removed themselves, they've moved on from from Achva, from brotherhood, companionship, and camaraderie. Almost a word of warning. How did Rashi know that? Look at the Sifzei Chachamim, Oschas. How did this answer the question? Yosef says, Have you seen my brothers? And he says, Nasu Mizeh. They left from this. Right before you get to Dosaina, he asked, "Where are they?" The Malch should have immediately said, "Oh, Shamati, Omrim Dosaina." I heard they said they were heading to go, to Dosan. Go check it there. And if I tell you, you can't find them here, and you're asking me where they are, and I say to you, I heard them saying they're going to Tinek. I don't need to introduce that by saying, oh, they left here. I heard them saying they're going to Tinek. Obviously they left here. You can't find them here. And I just told you where they were heading, so they left here. So why does he have to add, they left here? And that's how the Sipsa Chacham says, Rashi knew that the Torah is telling us more than just that they left here, but they left something metaphysical. They left a notion of kinship and love and so on. Okay. Uh, the Ramban, Nachmanides, quotes this. Hesiu atm menachwa nelcha dosaina. Levakesh lechanechli dasoshia misucha bahem. Right? Why were they going to Dosan? That's the next Rashi. The next Rashi. Why were they heading toward Dosan? To conspire against you. In other words, they've given up on brotherhood and kinship and working this out. And they've now gone to Dosan to conspire how they're going to kill you. What is Das? Daladaf, das. We refer to it as religion in modern Hebrew. Not dalad ayin tough, but dalad tough is religion. But it doesn't just mean religion; it means way of thinking. So maybe dosaina is they went to a place that you go to think, because they went to go think and to conspire how to get rid of you. Why they go to do that? Because nasu mizeh, they've left the building. They've left the concept of kinship and brotherhood. They're done. They're done working it out. That's Rashi's interpretation. 
Ve'en mikriyazim bide pshuto lashon Reb Shlomo. Right. So first Ramban quotes Rashi that really the pashup shad is dosaina means a place. You don't have to get into das, a place of thinking, to conspire, to strategize. It's a place, and that's a simple meaning, and that's Rashi. Ve'ena kavana l'raboseinu sh'yifarish lo ha'ish nasu mizeh min ha'achva v'hochul lo'orer alecha dinin v'tarumos shimken ha'ya nimna l'alechas v'oye masakein ba'atzmo. Rashi doesn't mean to explain that Yosef understood that the angel was saying to him, they've left brotherhood and they've gone to conspire and kill you. How does the Ramban know that Rashi doesn't mean to explain that Yosef understood that? Because if Yosef understood that, why in the world would he go there? If Yosef understood that what the angel meant to say in a very nuanced way was, they've left here, meaning they've left trying to work it out. And they went to this place where you go to conspire. They went to go hang out with some gangs to hire some thug to kill you. You would not expect Yosef to say, oh, that's great. Oh, let me go check them out. Let me go follow them. This is a very important comment of the Ramban. What the Ramban is saying here is that when a commentary suggests an additional layer of interpretation in the text, he's not suggesting that the protagonists themselves in the story understood this additional layer of interpretation. Very important Ramban. You understand? It means that sometimes there are additional layers in the text which are designed for us, the readers, to have greater insight and to see a message, a lesson, or something unfolding. But it doesn't mean to suggest that the players themselves in the story, in the narrative, understood the additional layer. So the Ramban's explaining that when Rashi says, Nasum Mizeh, it doesn't mean that Yaakov turned to the angel, Yosef turned to the angel and said, oh, I get it. They just want to conspire to kill me. Yosef heard, oh, they left here and they went to Dosan. I'm going to go find them there. We, the reader, are given this additional layer of interpretation to understand that what was happening when they left was not just that they left Shechem because there was no more grass, but they left the concept of brotherhood to go conspire. Okay, did you follow that? Very important for how we approach Biblical exegesis, how you approach the understanding of the Mepharshim altogether. Do the Mepharshim mean to suggest that the players themselves understood what the Mepharshim are suggesting? No, not necessarily. That suggestion is for us to have a better insight, but not that they themselves understood it. So Yosef didn't understand this additional layer. He just thought it meant that they moved on and he went to go find them. This person was an angel. How did you come up to this conclusion of creating this medrash, says the Ramban? Because you have a fundamental question. If this is an angel, and Yosef knows it's an angel, then what do you mean you're not sure where they are? You, heard, you overheard them say they're thinking about going to Dosan. Take out your GPS, your divine GPS, and tell me where they are. Where are they? Elamai, Yosef didn't know that they were an angel necessarily, and you come on to this interpretation. Okay, continue it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. 
lahamiso. They saw him from afar, and when he had not yet approached them, they conspired against him to kill him. They conspired against him to kill him. How did they know that he was coming to begin with? They saw him from a distance. They didn't know. I don't mean that in the beginning. And you say they left. Oh, they didn't necessarily. They're conspiring. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with this dreamer brother of ours? How are we going to get rid of him? So what do they say? So one brother says to the other brother, It's interesting also, right? Obviously he's speaking to his other brothers. That's who they're with. He could have just said, They all said one to their... Elechav. Well, it should be Vayomer, not Vayomru. Vayomru ish el achiv. So, what does that suggest? The Vayomru ish el achiv, that they were united in this plot. In other words, they all said one to another that they shared a mission. They all said one to another. They were all on the same page. And what did they say? Ah, Look who's coming! It's that dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. <coughs> Here comes the dreamer. So what do they say? Let's take him and kill him and throw him in one of the pits. And we'll say, a wild animal ate him. And then we'll see what will be with his dreams. Here comes the dreamer. Let's see what's going to be with his dreams. What does that mean? What does that mean? Look at the Sforno, Ravavadya Sforno. I don't know how the Sforno got that from Hinei Balachalomos, but the Sforno suggests the brothers see in Yosef's dreams not just Yosef's superiority, but that Yosef himself has a strategy. That he's, Yosef is trying to anger the brothers to the point that they will lose their cool and do something wrong which will violate both God and their own father and they'll suffer the consequences. So they, maybe the Sfarnos came to this conclusion because, okay, so your brother's got a superiority complex. So, you know, don't get together with him for Thanksgiving. Big deal. You have to kill him because he's got a superiority complex? But for the Sforno, it's more than that the brothers think Yosef has a superiority complex. They think Yosef's out to get him. They think Yosef is trying to, you know, you see it with your kids. They push the buttons. You got the one kid pushing the button of the other kid, and he's the instigator. And then the other kid's buttons are pushed so long that they lose their cool and take a broom and smack their brother or sister over the head. They've done something ten times worse. Who do you punish? How do you punish the one who did the worst thing or the instigator who brought it on. But here, they perceive Yosef sharing his dreams as instigating. And he's trying to instigate them to overreact in a way that will cause them great damage. And they basically therefore say, it's him or us. He's after us. It's going to be our end. We better take him out. And that's when he named Balachalomos. Here is the master of the dreams and this is his plan. Halazeh. It's this dreamer. Yeah. A halazeh ba. Although, according to the trup, it's bal chalomos halazeh ba. So. Yeah. The Rashbam is bothered also by the halazeh. The Rashbam says kol halazeh kisharom oso meirachok. You see the term halazeh used in the Torah when someone sees someone else from a distance, and he brings examples. Mihaish halazeh. 
Haman hara hazeh kishu bekarov. Halazeh means you see someone in the distance. That's how the Rashbam understands it. Um, so he says, "Venira ma'yu chalom osav." The Rashbam, the Sforno now continues his pshat. Hachaloma shesiper shayu morab shayala lagdula v'yimlo chaleinu. His dreams that reveal him as ascending and ruling over us. If we kill him, you know what will happen? His dreams will all be a big lie. They'll disappear into dust, into, there'll be a puff of air without fulfillment. Meaning basically, the Sforno says that the brother's reference to the dream is not a dream but a strategy. Here comes that guy who strategized against us. Let's kill him and we'll see what will be with his strategy. In other words, here comes someone who's trying, it's us or him. We got to take him out before he takes us out. That's how the Svorno understands it. Look at the Ramban. The Ramban says, Melitza derech laag. moso in the He says, it's a Melitza. It's a euphemism. It's a phrase. A dreamer? Let's see what's going to be with his dreams. He's got plans? Let's see what's going to be with his plans. Not anything more than that. It's a Melitza. If we save him, then he will indeed rule over us. So, so we have to get rid of him. We have to get rid of him so that we can say what will be with his dreams. So, the, the Rabban concludes, and Rashi also quotes this, that this wasn't part of what they said. The end of that Pasuk, let's go and kill him and we'll put him in the pit and we'll say a wild animal ate him. End quote of what the brother said. And now the Torah is testifying, but we, the readership, now let's go and see what will be with the dreams. Meaning that the brothers had this conspiracy but Yosef in the end was right. So, do you read Venira Ma Yuchalam Asav as part of the quote of what the brothers said? Or do you read it as the narrator, the Torah puts it in for the reader, end quote after let's kill him and say a wild animal ate him. Venira, and now the, the Ramban describes it as Ruach HaKodesh is saying. Well, the Ruach HaKodesh comes and says, but let's us, the reader, keep watching the next scene and we'll see what ended up being with Yosef's dreams. Right, it's a very different ways. The Sforno, the Ramban, a very different ways of approaching these Psukim. Vaishma Ruvain, let's just get to Shlishi. So at least we could say we did something. Vaishma Ruvain Vaitileo Miadam. Ruvain hears them and he saves Yosef. Vayomar Lona Kenu Nefesh, how can we kill a person? Vayomar Lehem Ruvain Atishbachudam. So Ruvain says to them, Don't kill. Hashlihu Osolabora Zeasher Bamidbar. Put him in the pit in this desert. Viad Atishlhubo, don't place a hand on him. Laman Hatila Som Miadam La Shivo Elaviv. To save him from their hand so he can be brought back to his father. Why did Ruvain do this? This Pasuk also now, it's difficult. Where's the end of the quote of what Ruvain said? And where does the narrator pick up? Right, you have here a play unfolding. You have a narrator filling in between the quotes, and you have the quotes of what the characters themselves said. So Ruvain says, don't spill blood, throw him in the pit, don't place a hand on him. End quote. Now the narrator says, that what was Ruvain's intent? To save him, to bring him back. 
Which is, of course, again, Rashi here says that. The narrator, that's not part of Ruvain's statement, that's the narrator. Again comes the sister Chachamim and says, how do you know that? You know that very simply. Because if Reuven was saying, don't put a hand on him, throw him in the pit so that I can save him and bring him back to dad, <laughs> he would never say that, right? He'd kill Reuven. So Sif Zicham says, it's obvious that this didn't come from Reuven. It's not part of his quote. It's the narrator, it's a Kodesh Baruch Hu telling us this is what Reuven had in mind. So what did Reuven have in mind? Was it noble to bring him back to the father? Says the Sif Zicham, says Rashi. Sif Zicham tells you how to arrive at that. No. Reuven wasn't worried about Yosef. Reuven was worried about? Reuven. Why? Because Reuven's the oldest. If you come home and say, mm, we can't find... Remember, at this point, the plan was to say, we don't know where Yosef went. All we found was this. What's his father going to say? You're the oldest. You're the Bechor. You're responsible. How could you let this happen? You need to go out and search everywhere and find my Yosef. So Reuven wasn't worried about Yosef. Reuven was worried about Reuven. And that's what the Pasuk is saying. Not part of the quote. It's after the fact. Unlike Yehuda, which we'll, we'll get to. Now, by the way, just... Uh, Reuven hears and says he's going to save them from his hands. This is a famous Orachayim. I wish we had another five hours. This is a famous Orachayim. The Orachayim says here, we talked about this. I gave a lunch and learn a few weeks ago on uh, the question of who's calling the shots. Divine will versus free will. Divine providence versus free will. This is a famous Orachayim. We quoted it then. The Orachayim is of the position that free will trumps divine providence. That even if God has not determined that someone should die, free will is so strong, it is so powerful and potent, that a person's free will can kill someone, result in the death of someone who is not destined to die. This is a very unusual opinion. Most opinions are, Someone only dies if God wills it. How their death occurs, that's where free will comes in. God could have had them die through a massive heart attack or a tree falling on their head or someone else murdering. So the murderer is accountable because they use their free will to murder. And at the same time, God intended that person to die. That's the mainstream opinion, is that any death that occurs, God willed that death. Ah, what about the free will? It could have come through any means. That person still used their free will to assert themselves to be the agent of death. But the Archaim disagrees. Archaim says the Perish Misa. When Ruvain says Miadam, let me save them from their hands, what do you mean Miadam from their hands? If God doesn't want Yosef to die, they're gonna live. What is Ruvain? I have to save him from their hands. How could the brothers kill someone who's not destined to die? So the Rachaim Rachaim Ben Atar comes to the conclusion that free will is so powerful that you can kill someone who's not destined to die. Unlike animals, wild animals can't affect a person unless God wants them to. If a person died because they were attacked by a wild animal, that had to be the hand of Hashem. Because wild animals don't have free will. But at the hand of another human being, it's a famous opinion of the Orachayim that a human being's free will is so powerful you can kill someone who's not destined to die it supersedes even God's will we'll stop here